0: I'm Kristen Marchand, and this is The Opiongo Line, a fortnightly podcast about our local heritage and culture here in the Upper Mattawaska and Opiongo River Valleys. Joining us today is Graham Conway with a one-man Opiongo Readers Theatre show about his great grandfather, Thomas Patrick Murray. As those of you who once knew Thomas Patrick Murray or now know Graham Conway, you're in for no ordinary show. How so? Well, Tom Murray was born in 1880, a short distance from Barry's Bay at a time when there was no village of Barry's Bay. Indeed, Tom was already 11 years old when Canada's first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, died in 1891. And he was already a young father by the time the Great War broke out in 1914. Put another way, though many of us remember where we were when John F. Kennedy was shot, Tom Murray remembers where he was in 1901, when the 25th President of the United States, William McKinley, was assassinated. Which is probably why, early in the 1970s, one of Tom's grandsons and a regular contributor to the Opiongo line, Sean Conway, decided to sit down and record Tom's thoughts about McKinley and other famous politicians of his day, if not a thousand and one other interesting stories. And so, he did. For old Tom, as they used to say back then, was a man of many parts, and whether talking about his love of baseball, walking the local forests, his career in politics, or a dozen other topics near and dear to his heart, Thomas Patrick Murray was never one to shy away from a good story. So today, thanks to Sean Conway, we have some of Tom Murray's best stories for you this afternoon. But there's the rub. Tom was a true man of the valley, and though you will hear his actual voice later on in the show, Tom's brogue was a mighty tough road to hoe for those not born to the sweet sound of his very distinctive ancient accent. So that's where his great-grandson, Graham Conway, comes in. For many of you who have heard Graham's professional work here on the Op line, or saw him perform on the Toronto stage, or on TV with Nickelodeon, or in Murdoch Mysteries, you know he's a very talented actor. So we thought... What better way to bring you the authentic words of Thomas Patrick Murray than through a professional voice who shares his DNA? Time now, then, for Thomas Patrick Murray's words, compliments of the man himself, as recorded by his grandson, Sean Conway, and performed today by his great-grandson, Graham Conway.
1: In 1880, I was born out between Siberia and Green and Lake in a little cedar shanty, 20 feet by 20 feet, "'There was one little window with four panes of glass in the south end of it. "'The door was in the east wall, and it had a window there. "'The roof was made of cedar scoops, the floor made of hewed pine. "'The year I was born, my dad built a new big log house with three bedrooms. "'My parents had one room, the girls had one room, and the boys had one room. "'There were two beds in the boys' room.' "'but only one bed in the girls' room, because there was only two of them. "'Our parents had the baby in their room. "'In the living room there was a good stove with a pile of wood in the corner "'and a spare bed for a guest. "'For instance, in 1885 we had a surveyor, Frank Kerr of Eganville, "'who had come up to do some work, and so he slept there. "'He had to get up early in the morning so the rest of us could come out.' That was the house we lived in until 1889, when we moved to what would become Barry's Bay. My mother was a wonderful cook. The way she could cook an egg, fry pork, make gravy, she could make buns, and I never saw anybody who could make doughnuts like she could. And bread. Sometimes we'd get a half-dozen partridge, and she'd make a dumpling soup with them. My father kept about a hundred hens— "'so we all slept in feather-beds. "'The quilts with the feathers in them "'were homemade during quilting-bees. "'In the mornings we'd have a pretty heavy meal. "'My father always wanted to eat heavy in the morning, "'so we'd have potatoes and pork or beef or mutton "'if we'd killed a sheep, "'and at noon they'd have the same. "'But before we'd go to bed we'd have oatmeal porridge, "'and my dad would have his in a kind of thrash-bowl with cream.' "'For light, all we had were tallow candles. "'You had to kill a fat sheep and render the tallow, "'and then we'd use the candle-rolls and make eight candles at a time, "'each one eight to nine inches long. "'We used to drop the wick down the candle-roll "'before spilling in the hot tallow, and it would cool and harden. "'My father was a fifth-book scholar from up near the north of Ireland.' He was an educated man, and he got a subscription to the Montreal Weekly Star. That was his Bible. It was a big newspaper, and he'd read it all out loud for us children. He'd be sitting at one end of the table with a tallow candle, and my mother at the other end, sewing or patching, with another candle. I remember one time Jim Costello came out to buy cattle from us and stayed with us. McKinley— "'The President of the United States had just been assassinated. "'It was McKinley who had put a high tariff on sheep and cattle, "'and it had affected our cattle, "'and my dad would have quite a bit of political conversations with the Polish people, "'the Jakobuskys in particular. "'They'd come in to see him and spend all Sunday afternoon talking to my dad about politics. "'He'd talk to them about what was going on in politics "'and talk about what was in the newspaper from all over the world.' Sometimes, during the week, they'd stop by for tea. In the 1880s and the first half of the 1890s there were no schools, no churches. The neighbours surrounding us were all Polish, and their children all spoke Polish. We only had ourselves. There was only my uncle Pat, who was the youngest Murray uncle. He wasn't married, so he had no children to play with us, but he was on the farm south of us and we could visit him. People might wonder how we put the time in. Well, we started to work when we were five or six years old. It would start in the spring when my father would begin ploughing and harrowing. At that time there was a lot of new land, and so a lot of stumps. They couldn't get up to the stumps with a harrow or a plough, so it was up to us children to work around the stumps with a hoe. So we'd hoe up ground or mine the grain— "'right around the stumps. "'That was our work when they were putting in the crop. "'In June they'd put in a half-acre of potatoes, "'and it was our business to keep the potatoes clear of bugs. "'We'd grab hold of them, put them in a dish, and later scald them. "'My dad would have hired a man from time to time, "'and they'd chop down perhaps three or four acres of the bush. "'We thought it was a great thing to see them cutting down the big trees.' "'We wanted to see all the big trees fallen. "'In July, the best month of all, we'd start mowing the hay, "'and my dad always had a hired man helping him, "'cutting the hay with a sigh. "'I think the whittling of a sigh is the greatest music I ever heard. "'And the smell of new-mown hay, and all the bugs and birds and the bumblebees "'that had their nests down in the ground with the mice— while the wasps had their nests up in the trees. There were all kinds of blue jays and robins, and different kinds of birds, and some kind of big, inch-long bees. I don't know what they were, but they'd make a big noise going through the air. So amidst all that racket we used to work, raking up the hay that had been cut. And if the hay was heavy, we'd spread it out with a little fork, so the sun could get at it. "'and that would last the whole month of July. "'And then we cut the grain with reaping-hooks. "'When we were six or seven years old, "'we'd learn to use a reaping-hook, "'and it might cut our hands, but we'd keep at it. "'Another job we'd do. "'Once they mowed the hay, "'the aftergrass would start and they'd let the cows in there. "'But it was up to us children to keep them cows "'out of the other grain-fields that were still growing.' "'In the fall we'd have to dig the potatoes, and then the trashing would start, and the flailing. "'We'd trash the peas and see to the fanning mill and look after the oats, sometimes wheat. "'My father used to do quite a lot of hunting in the autumn, "'and we'd get interested in his shooting of the deer and help bringing it home. "'He used to get the deer skins tanned by the Indians, "'and my mother would make deerskin mitts for us to wear in the winter.' Sometimes she'd make fifty pair with just a needle and thread. She was a wonderful woman with a needle. When the snow came, my dad would make a trip to Eganville with the sleigh, and he'd buy about one hundred and fifty dollars worth of stuff. They'd make a list, and it would take him three days to make the trip there and back. One day to go down, one day to buy, and one day to come back. During the winter time we had to draw the hay and oats to the lumber shanties. We'd load it one day, and the next take it to the lumber camps. It was a long day, but everybody was interested in what the load weighed and what our neighbor's loads weighed. Another job we had in the winter was to clean out the cow sheds. As spring came there was a glorious period when we were making maple syrup. "'We had two big coolers and a small cooler, and we made a big fire in the bush. "'The only other equipment we had at the time was a sap gouge. "'It was a sharp tool made by a blacksmith, and we used to lend it around to other people. "'You'd drive it into a maple tree, and it made two little notches above it, "'and then you put in a wooden tap and attach a wooden trough, "'made from a piece of nice white basswood about fifteen inches in diameter.' "'You'd drop two feet off of it, right through the middle, "'and then with an adze gouge it out. "'And the sap would fall into what we called a sap trough. "'Then we'd carry the sap in pails from the sap trough to the cooler. "'There was one big maple, "'a grand tree that had so much sap running "'that we had to use a butter churn to collect it. "'It was a glorious period of the year making that maple syrup.' "'We never made too much because we never sold any of it, just enough for our own use. "'Sometimes my mother would put it on the stove. She'd boil it down to sugar. "'The first time I came out to Barry's Bay was to pick blueberries in 1885. "'There was nothing in the village of Barry's Bay other than three or four scooped shacks "'that Jimmy Drowan called the Blueberry Hotel.' and Billy Kerwin had started a blacksmith shop across the road from the hotel, but he couldn't make a go of it, so it was closed up. There weren't many trees on it. They called it the Norway Plain, because all the good trees, the good red pine that had been burnt off in a big fire that had passed through, and that was why it was good for blueberries. But in 1889 Jimmy Drowen got Jim Devine, a carpenter, to come up and put a single roof on his scooped shacks and called it the blueberry hotel then frank stafford arrives here in 1892 or 1893 and he wanted to build his store we moved into berry's bay ourselves in 1889 because there were no stones on the new farm in berry's bay my father was tired of plowing on the old farm that had stones "'There was a terrible, heavy frost, and I remember on the old farm that frost had killed the wheat there, "'and so Joe Prince came over on Sunday morning and said that the Wilcheskys and Trebinskys, "'they lived on this farm in Berry's Bay, and after that frost they moved off. "'My father bought that farm. Billy Martin told my father, "'Oh, I hear you bought the frosty farm.' "'We moved into town in 1889, up near where Arnie Murray's is now, and it was all jack pine—flat jack pine, not the tall stuff—from where the Bank of Montreal is now, right up to Arnie Murray's. "'My uncle, Pat Murray, had a fifty-acre lot between Drowan's Hotel and us. We were the next lot towards Cebulski's Lake.' When we were kids we used to come down and sit in that Uncle Pat's Jack Pine across from the Blueberry Hotel and watch all the fightin' and dancin' going on. The real education we got mostly came from our dad when he read from the newspapers. When I met Nellie Irving, the schoolteacher, that first time, I was nearly fourteen years old, but I don't think I could read or write at that time. When I started school in May 1894, I began with the second book. Billy Kitts and George Martin had gone to the Barclay School the year before, and were already in the second book, and so I wanted to be in the same book as them. I had a terrible time for a while. I had to study hard, and I had to stay at it. I only went to school about two months that year. But when old Scott, the school inspector— "'had come around, he told the teacher to put Frank Murray and Tom Murray in the third book. "'And they left the others in the second book, and so Billy and George quit right there. "'They didn't come back after that. "'When I came back the next year, I was in senior third, "'but I studied quite a bit myself at home. "'I was doing fractions, long division, and short division.' "'My father had told the teacher not to teach me history or geography. "'I got that at home. "'Just teach me reading and writing and arithmetic. "'So eventually I got to the fourth book. "'There was always a lot of trouble at the schoolhouse, "'and Nellie Irving got into quite a lot of trouble herself. "'She was a great teacher, "'but she didn't know what was going on outside of the schoolhouse.' "'and the trouble outside was the fighting that was going on among the farm boys and among their parents. "'We didn't want to fight, but Mick Coolis, Frank Retza, and the others, they were a lot bigger than me, "'and they were wanting to fight outside just for fun, apparently, and I didn't want to fight. "'So my brother Frank got into serious trouble, and Joe Prince and the parents got into it too, "'and so we had to quit school for a couple of months.' "'That fall in 1894, when the railroad station was being built, "'the station manager and some of the others who were all Protestants "'sent their children to our school, a public school, "'and so the teacher used to teach us catechism after hours "'because of the Protestant children. "'They made up only about five or six per cent, "'but the Catholic children got along fine with them, "'so the Protestant children would stay after school,' "'and wait for us until catechism was over. "'They'd get playing a game outside, "'and since they were from Kingston, "'it was often an orange game that included someone saying, "'Open the gates as high as the sky "'and let King William's men pass by. "'We didn't know the difference, "'so we'd often play that game with them. "'Miss McNamara taught me for the last two months I was there,' "'in fall of 1896. "'She wasn't near as good as Nellie Irving. "'The George children were there, "'and their parents were from Eganville, "'and were friends with Miss McNamara, "'and they got special privileges at school. "'The school was right on the other side "'of where the hospital is now, "'right there between those two little creeks. "'It was a log school with about forty pupils "'and only one teacher sometimes.' "'All the girls sat on one side, all the boys on the other side. "'A funny thing. "'I was a tall boy, and teacher put me up near the front "'behind Tommy Retza, who was ahead of Felix Vankosky. "'Tom was seven years old, and I was sixteen, "'and when Tom hit Felix a crack, boxing his ears, "'Felix would turn around and hit Tom back, "'but when the teacher turned from the blackboard... She'd only see Tom holding down his head, pretending to be crying, so she'd beat Felix for starting it all. Tom was full of mischief. His father died when Tom was only seven years old, but his father was eighty-eight. You'd be surprised how well the Polish children got along at school. They only spoke Polish at home— "'But my dad told Nellie Irving to be patient with the Polish children "'because many of them had no English. "'So when they came to the school the first time, "'some of them couldn't even say their names in English. "'So Victoria Coolis became Maggie Coolis "'because somebody gave the teacher the wrong name. "'The same happened to Monica Prince, who got called Hannah. "'But it was remarkable how the Bleskys got on so well with English and so fast.' "'both Felix and the girls. "'And Mick Prince, he was working so steady at his studies, "'I had a heck of a time to keep ahead of him. "'The school board included Billy Martin, Frank Dunn, Charlie Kitts, "'and my father, James, the secretary-treasurer, two Protestants and two Catholics, "'but Frank Dunn had a way of starting trouble.' I was only fifteen at the time, but was at one of the school meetings when religious trouble started. My dad couldn't tolerate Frank Dunn, a real troublemaker. It was Dunn who started the separate school here in Barry's Bay, and he wasn't even Catholic. When that gang from Arn Prior, the Bolans and Dolans and Georges, came to town with the railroad in 1894, they wanted to start a Catholic school. "'A separate school. "'It started on Boxing Day, the Wednesday after Christmas, 1895. "'The four trustees had a signed agreement with Dunn, "'who then delayed the start of the regular public school meeting until eleven o'clock, "'but that morning Frank double-crossed the school board "'and he notified his railroad gang to be there at ten o'clock, "'and they voted out the two Protestant trustees and fired the Catholic teacher.' "'Mick Dolan and his gang "'then said we'd have a separate school "'and we'd get a school grant. "'Frank Dunn just wanted "'to make trouble. "'He never even went to church. "'He was living on Mask Island. "'They had moved down "'from Bark Lake, "'where they had a farm "'just above Red Mick Conway's "'on the old Lopiongo Road. Two of the Dunns are buried up there. "'Both died of diphtheria. "'Old Bill Dunn "'Frank's father was an Englishman with an English brogue, "'but he was a worker who bought the island from the Actons. "'But when Bill died, Frank paid more attention to making mischief "'than looking after his farm, and so he lost the island. "'Josh Billings was there for a while, "'then Abe White, and then Paul Mask bought it. "'The island was first owned by a Welsh nobleman, "'He and his wife used to go horseback riding all through the bush "'because they were taught how to ride in the old country. "'So Dunn had a big school meeting, and I paid my two dollars. "'I was only a young fellow, and some of the Protestants were there, "'and so they opened a separate school on the first of January, "'and they did get the grant. "'And then they built that separate school "'with one teacher on a corner lot here in Berry's Bay.' "'But the Catholics still controlled the public school "'because the Polish were still the big majority in the public school. "'In 1891 there was a terrible calamity when the diphtheria was here. "'There was a Polish girl working for Drowin "'and she got diphtheria, and she went down home to Wilno. "'And to tell you how bad it was, the Mahon family at Rockingham, "'the mother died and then about eight of the children.' Only one of the children escaped. Finally, Dr. Chandler came up from Eganville. The government sent him up there, but nearly twenty people died around Rockingham. The Conways got it, the Billings got it, and the Drones got it twice. The two oldest Drones died. The oldest was nearly as old as I was. That was back when we were living on the old farm in Siberia, and they had a wake— and Dr. Kindler arrived and chased us all out. The next time they got it, in 1891, another drone died, and that time my father was in there, but he never carried it home. Old Dr. Leader was in Brudenell. When I was five years old in 1885, there was a smallpox scare, and Dr. Leader came up to Billy Martin's and vaccinated them. You could vaccinate yourself back in those days— "'if you had the right stuff to use. "'The only trouble we had was with diphtheria, "'and we had a few cases of scarlet fever. "'The Murrays was lucky they missed that. "'You take Nicholas Conway. "'He never got over that. "'And Tom Conway? "'He fared better. "'He was a big, strong man, and Mick, "'he had it bad, too, and Maggie, "'but none of them died with it. "'But two of the Duns died.' AND THEY WERE LIVING RIGHT ABOVE THE CONWAYS, AND ARE BURIED UP THERE. AND THEN IT GOT OUT TO Rockingham AND WILNO AND BRUDENELL. MY MOTHER WAS A WONDERFUL NURSE. SHE WAS LIKE INSPIRED. ONE OF THE MURRAYS DIED WHEN HE WAS ONLY ABOUT A MONTH OLD, WITH A WHITE TONGUE, WHITE MOUTH, AND MY MOTHER FOUND OUT the CURE FOR THAT, SO THE CHILDREN WERE PRETTY HEALTHY. There was no school, so the disease didn't get scattered around too much during the time of diphtheria, and the women they helped each other. The time I was born, the midwife, Mrs. Sayah, she lived up there where Lorne Conway lives now, and so when the time came, they said my dad went to Mrs. Sayah. She was a strange kind of a woman, a good-looking woman, but not very big, but very cultured. Her husband was just the opposite, rough-looking, and half Indian. And so my dad went up and told her the trouble, and so she lit her pipe and said, All right, James, I'll be there. I'll be there. She paddled right down in her bark canoe to the foot of the trail up to our farm, and that's the way she got there. And I was born the next day. There were other Indians. Joe Francois was living down on the point at the Narrows. He had a little farm there, and there was a colony of Indians living below Cumbermere where that old Xavier Francois, he was chief. He was a big copper-colored man, 225 pounds. He had a stiff knee. He'd been shot in the knee or something. Joe was a small man. He wasn't a full Indian because he was not too black. I wanted to be called an Indian until I saw Joe Francois. "'That settled it. I was very black. You'd be surprised how black I was. "'There was an Englishman working for Jack Martin, and he'd look at me and wonder, "'What are you looking so black about? What are you looking so black about?' "'One day I got off the train in Golden Lake, and there were Indians standing around, "'and somebody said the Indians looked whiter than me. I was all sunburnt. "'I had a remarkably dark complexion.' and my eyes at that time were pretty black. There were no priests around at all. I saw my first priest when I was ten years old, at Phil Coolis's. I saw that big fellow, Father Dowdle. A few years later I saw Father Dowdle and Father Ryan, who came up for the Easter duty with the new Polish priest from Wilno, Father Jankowski, and they came up and had an interpreter with them. "'Father Dempsey had come to Joe Prince's when I was three years old, "'and he said mass at Joe Prince's, in that old scooped house, but I didn't go. "'And Father McCormick had been up to Pat Murray's when I was two years old. "'They said I was there, but I can't remember. "'They said Father McCormick was an awful hard man to cook for. "'They said he was an Irishman, and he died young, at fifty-five, a big, good-looking man.' "'As far as church was concerned, we were well brought up. "'There was no quarrelling at our house, never a bad word spoken. "'And even after we moved here in 1889 from Siberia to what would become the village of Barry's Bay, "'when Bill Kitts and them other fellows started their tough talk, we didn't understand it. "'One time Barclay Kerwin and Bill O'Malley came looking to buy some oats for my father, "'and they started to sing a song.' And so we went into the schoolhouse the next day, singing the same song, and Nellie Irving told our sister it had a bad meaning to it. We didn't understand such things at all. Of course, when it came to swearin', we knew Curse and Peter Prince, who used to swear when he was talking to my dad. There wasn't much church. We never went hardly at all to the church in Wilno when we lived on the old farm. But there were prayers— I remember my brother Charlie and I walked Easter morning one time to Wilno, down the railroad track about a mile an hour, but that was later on, when we were older. The Polish church had been built in Siberia in 1896, and Father Jankowski, the Wilno priest, used to come up and say mass there. Father Jankowski used to preach there for two hours till one o'clock in the afternoon, WE USED TO GO THERE ON SUNDAYS, BUT AT HOME WE WERE TAUGHT LOTS OF PRAYERS. MY PARENTS WERE STRICT, IN A WAY, YOU HAD TO SAY YOUR PRAYERS. THERE WAS NO DARN SWEARING OR TEARING AROUND. THE FIRST CATHOLIC CHURCH IN THE VILLAGE OF BERRY'S BAY WAS BUILT IN 1897, AND WAS LOOKED AFTER BY FATHER FRENCH FROM BRUDENELL, A GREAT BIG STRONG MAN, A FAMOUS FOOTBALL PLAYER. HE WAS QUITE A FIGHTING MAN. "'Once a fight started at a picnic in Brudenell among the Malones in the Getzes. "'Father French says, let's go, we'll stop it.' "'And he did, by gosh. "'Once they built the church here, about a year later in 1898, "'we had a mission preacher, a big man from Glengarry. "'Father MacPhail came up here. "'I remember he got up and looked at us and said, "'Fear not!' "'I bring you tidings of great joy.' "'He then got talking on the liquor question, "'and I was sitting beside Red Mick Conway, "'and the priest was going on about the abuse of liquor "'and giving examples of young men "'who were abusing and abused by liquor. "'And Red Mick kept giving me the elbow and saying, "'He's right, he's right.' "'The priest then started talking about prostitution "'and told us all, "'Young men, don't let down your guard.' And of course Red Mick would poke me again saying he's right, he's right. When I was down in Killaloo once seeing a girl, Father Isaiah French made everybody over eighteen years old stand up in church and they all had to take the pledge for a year. But the Killaloo Hotel was run by a good Irish Catholic who, after Mass, went down opened the bar on Sunday and made it a rule that every time you took a drink you had to take the pledge. And they tried to do the same thing with dancing, saying it was a mortal sin. But the funniest thing of all was that when John Harrington and Bill Dooner, who were both going through to become priests, they used to go down to Black Mick Conway's where there was dancing and a big party every Saturday night. I wouldn't go to a dance back then— In the Diocese of Pembroke, dancing was condemned. It was the only diocese where it was. But when John Harrington got through for a priest, they broke that rule, and had public dances at Mount St. Patrick, and had dances there at two dollars apiece. And the women would make pies, and they'd have a real dancing feast. And at the O'Grady Settlement— "'They had wonderful dances with the Dailies and O'Grady's and the Doyle's and the Malone's. "'I was a water boy on the railroad for three months when I was fourteen years old, in 1894. "'I was eighty-one pounds, and that was the year we got our first communion and got confirmed, all on the same day. "'My brother, Mick, was with me, and he was two and a half years older.' "'I was working on the railroad, and we got off one day. "'Imagine, we walked to Wilno, and no breakfast. "'I got paid fifty cents a day and had to board myself. "'A man got a dollar and a quarter and had to board himself. "'I used to bring the water across the lake in a canoe. "'There were two springs on the Sobolski farm "'that came bubbling right out of the ground there, "'and I used to get that water, "'though some of them thought swamp water was good enough.' When we were living up on the farm out past Siberia, Henry George and a carpenter from Eganville showed up in Barry's Bay with a broad axe, a saw, and a couple of other axes, and they wanted to make the timbers for the foundations out of virgin red pine. When they started to build the railroad, Bill George built there. "'His brother-in-law, Marston, was killed with a railway blast at Haggerty's Pass near Wilno. Two other fellows were killed as well. "'The blast had gone off, but not all of it went off, and they got fooled, "'and so when they went back they were killed. "'Then the Dunnigans from Killaloo showed up and built the liquor store close to the train station, "'and they rented it to Bill Brady.' "'And Bill done a great business, because there was all kinds of drinking going on. "'And there were big crowds of Finlanders working on the railroad, "'and about a hundred Italians, all camped at McLaughlin Sawmill "'down near those tall red pines at the lake. "'Every so often the Italians would buy a couple of sheep and a bag of potatoes from us "'and have a feast, because they lived mostly on bread.' "'They had a boss who was always all dressed up, "'and he did all their business for them "'because he could talk English. "'Those were terrible hard times. "'So the farmers had to build the railroad. "'When I was fourteen that summer of ninety-four, "'I was working for John Mackey, "'a farmer and a man about sixty-five years of age "'who was a subcontractor of O'Neill and Ferguson, "'who had ten miles of track to build. "'But Mackey was a farmer.' and he had two miles from the crossing in town to Martin's Curve. He had about eight team of horses building the grade, two team from the township of McNabb, Duncan Moorhead and George Shaw, and a gibbon from Northcote, the best land in the world. Gibbons was an elderly man, and he had the best farm in Northcote. Then there was Stacy Box and George Thompson from Admiston, all farmers. Our team worked there as well, "'when they weren't working on the farm. "'They didn't do much farming that year except to cut the hay. "'And Jimmy Drowan had a team work in the railroad as well. "'Somebody was driving for him. "'When the new people started to move in, "'Mrs. Billy Martin said it was too bad "'that they were just settling down to starve. "'She was living on the hill at the post office. "'As soon as the railroad was built,' "'Josh Billings started building the hotel right opposite the station. "'And then Ben Kish, the section foreman, built that house that Jordans ended up living in. "'And another section man, Perkins, he built down across from the creek. "'And then Tom McLean, he built a house. "'But the first church built here was in 1895.' It was a Methodist church right over there on the corner where the Anglican church is now. We had a Methodist minister, and Barry's Bay back then was a Methodist town. Father French and Brudenell only came to see us very seldom. And so when the Methodist minister moved here, it became a Methodist town. The Protestants moved right in. Indeed, we ourselves went to a Protestant meeting at Bill George's. There was a bunch boarding with us on the farm." And they were working on the railroad, building the wooden trestle up near Carson Lake. Jim Stewart was boarding with us. He was a section foreman, and Adam Clark and Tommy Short and John Sanderson, who was a big man. He worked on the section with Bill Polner, and so we all went down to Bill George's, to a Protestant prayer meeting, and that old minister from Cross Lake, Smith who was educated in Germany, was there, and he was the man who started the settlement at Cross Lake. He was a wonderful man who'd walk out ten miles from Cross Lake and have a service at Madawaska for the railroad builders, and then he'd walk down ten miles to Bark Lake and have service at the Bark Lake School, and then he'd walk to Barry's Bay and have services at Bill George's at eight o'clock Sunday night, But on Monday he was back in Cross Lake behind his plough, farming. He was quite the preacher. And there was another tall old fellow with a whisker. I don't know who he was. The Methodists and the Catholics got along well. The Murrays, my dad and Pat Murray, built the Methodist church. And so they began to move in. Bill Brady built that building that Martin Daly lived in. Paddy Regan, a carpenter from Brudenell, came up and built that building. They hewed the logs out right there and built it. The first Polish family to move into Berry's Bay was Joe Prince, who had a farm and a sawmill out at Greenin's Creek before moving into town. He was a pretty well-off man. When the railroad went through, it was the only place they could get lumber. I was there when they spiked the rails and the first train arrived. It was just flat cars, and they had a band out the end working the flat car that was used to build the railroad. It was called Jumbo, and had two places with rollers to slide the rails down to the rail bed where the ties were all laid, and they had the gauge all set, and then they'd spike them down. On that day they were working after hours. "'It was about seven o'clock in the evening, "'and they were about a hundred feet below the crossing at Murray's store, "'and they come right up to the Opiongo Line crossing, "'and then they quit, where a sinkhole developed, "'and they had quite a lot of trouble, "'and had to fill it with gravel down there in that beaver meadow. "'The locomotive, number 63. "'It wasn't very big, but it was big enough "'that it sunk down into that sinkhole. "'Weeks later... "'A train with boxcars came in, and we had thought that was a big thing. "'We thought that's where the passengers might be riding inside, "'but when they brought up some passenger coaches "'and left them at the divisional point, when we saw them, "'we thought they were grand. It was a surprise. "'And then the railroad conductor, John O'Boyle. "'He used to go to our church, and he'd walk right up to the front pew.' "'wearing his conductor's uniform with brass buttons, "'and Jerry Lynn was the brakeman, and he was all dressed up too, "'and he had a coat with brass buttons. "'He was a big man, 225 pounds, "'and we're in church looking at all that thinking. "'Boy, oh boy! Wonderful! "'They never thought about money. "'They were so proud of their jobs.' "'So they ran the train from Ottawa to Barry's Bay, and it stayed all Sunday night here, "'and on Monday morning at seven o'clock it went back to Ottawa. "'They built the station as soon as the railroad come in, "'and they had it pretty well built when Stafford and Booth quarrelled over the land. "'And they went to work, and they moved the station two miles up into the bush. "'They put in a little siding about half a mile from Billy Martin's post-office, "'and they set in a little box-car and fixed it up for a station, "'and the station agent boarded up at Billy Martins. "'Frank Dunn wrote a piece about it, and he said it was an awful disgrace, a scandal. "'He said, "'It resembled an African jungle. "'It was inhabited by rabbits and darkies of an inferior race. "'He didn't like the Martins, and so he wanted to get a crack at them, "'because the Martins were a dark-complexioned people.' "'Billy Martin was a brother-in-law of John S. J. Watson of Rockingham, "'the nobleman who had married a Martin, "'who was supposed to be his chambermaid in the Watson Castle over in England. "'According to my father, Watson was given $60,000 in gold and asked to leave. "'And in 1856 Watson came out to Ottawa and the first baby was born in Ottawa.' And the next one was born in Rockingham, where he had brought a bunch of Englishmen with him, and they were mechanics, and they built a flour mill there, and a sawmill, and I think a water mill there. We used to take our wheat down there and get it ground into flour. And he could cut lumber, and I even think he had a planning mill there. And he built a church and home for the minister. Sometimes he acted as minister himself when they had no one to lead the service. "'As I was saying, I was a water boy when I should have been going to school. "'I was water boy for about three months in 1894 when I was fourteen years old and weighed eighty-one pounds. "'I was very small for my age. "'When I was about sixteen and only weighed about a hundred and ten pounds, "'I damn near killed myself on the railroad. "'The section foreman's daughter had died, and they took her down to Kingston, "'and a couple of the men went down too.' and Jim Stewart went to work and said there wasn't much to do on the railroad in the fall, so I could fill in until those men come back. He then went down and got a telegram to lift the siding up at Carson Lake, and three section gangs were brought together, and holy Moses, I was bushed in three days. Oh, it was terrible. Anyway, then in January 1897 there was a wreck up there near Carson Lake, Four men got killed at O'Brien's siding, "'and eighteen cars were piled up there "'on that curve back of the old motel "'where Bill O'Brien had his sawmill "'on this side of Tim's Creek and Otter Lake. "'There was another wreck there in 1909 "'where Thurston got killed the time of the cloudburst, "'and we got a job there cleaning up, "'but it wasn't very hard, "'so I tried the railroad several times.' "'Frank Stafford's nephew, Frank Wall.' was a professional lacrosse player and a professional hockey player, and he played for Montreal, and so Stafford's store here in town carried hockey sticks and lacrosse sticks, and some people played with them out in the street, but it never caught on at first, not until about 1905. In the winter we got around on snowshoes. We even had a snowshoe club here before I was married.' Harry Holstein was head man, and everybody, including school teachers from all around joined. They went through all the bush on Saturday and Sundays. It was just one of the many social clubs that was got up at the time. You'd be surprised how many people were involved. Henry Chepesky and Mike Retza and the CMBA, the Catholic Mutual Benefit Association. It was wonderful. They offered $1,000 insurance. I had to go down to Dr. Maloney to be examined to get that insurance. That was when Dr. Maloney was just married, and his new wife came in to look around. It was quite the society. We had about one hundred members around nineteen hundred. But what happened was this fellow from Kingston, S.R. Brown, invested our money and lost it all. I lost about five hundred dollars or more, I did, and so the whole society went broke.' "'Once we had a tug-of-war at the picnic down here between the CMBA Barry's Bay and the CMBA Killaloo. "'The first year we had Ned O'Leary, a two-hundred-and-sixty-pound anchor-man, and we won it. "'I was pulling, and that was the only time Dr. Maloney was pulling with me. "'Dr. Maloney belonged to our club. "'There was Henry George, a big, strong man, and Dr. Maloney, two-hundred-and-ten pounds.' my brother Jim and Nicholas Conway, three big men and three smaller ones. We also had boxing gloves up on the farm, and I took a few lessons from the Montreal Weekly Star. And they had boxing gloves down here in Potter's Hall, and boxing gloves at the railroad station, and boxing gloves in the hotels. And so we boxed! Me and Jerry Dunnegan, Wilson Mackey, John Dwyer. A funny thing happened when I was about fifteen or sixteen. "'Con Brier and Henry George were the two best barroom fighters in Eganville, "'and they were on a drunk, and I was going to church, "'and I met them at the railroad there on the Pog Lake Road, "'and they insulted me severely, gave me the horse laugh. "'But about a year after that, Con's son, John, came up to build the hotel. "'He was twenty-five years old, six foot tall, and a hundred and eighty-five pounds.' "'black-coloured hair, and they were all afraid of him "'because he was the son of Conbriar. "'But this was my chance to get even with Conbriar. "'And so I put the gloves on and started in. "'I was pretty good with my left, "'and I'd throw my right over the other fellows. "'and after I'd come through with my right, "'I hit him with my left on his jaw. "'And after I repeated that about three times, "'he left his body wide open, "'and then I came in with a corkscrew right, "'and he got sick quick.' and he quit soon enough. He didn't last one round. In 1906 baseball got so popular around here, there was a special train from Renfrew to Kearney, two miles west of Algonquin Park, a little place with 200 people and a chair factory, and the big thing was the ball game. Charlie, my brother, said the train was 20 coaches long, but I said it was only 10 coaches, "'with a baggage and dining-car. "'About five hundred of us went up on that train for that baseball game in Kearney. "'I had it born in me that if I saw a man who was an athlete of some kind, "'I'd follow him around and look at him. "'My first brush with baseball was back in 1888, "'and it was on the old farm in Siberia.' "'We got the Montreal Weekly Star, and there was a drawing of a man dressed in a strange kind of clothing, "'and I asked my dad who who was that fellow, and he said it was Cheney, the baseball king. "'And, you know, I have that drawing yet. "'That was the first I heard of baseball. It was 1888. "'I naturally took to sports in general, but baseball in particular. "'Anything, running, jumping, throwing the shot, and baseball.' "'It was born right in me, and I was doting on baseball. "'At times I couldn't think of anything else. "'The first baseball game ever played in Barry's Bay was on the 7th of April, 1895. "'There were a bunch of men around town, and times were hard, "'and Kingston was a baseball town, and Brudenell and Eganville had baseball. "'And there were a bunch doing nothing on a Sunday afternoon, "'and it was an awful nice afternoon.' We had played a forehand game at school, but I'd never seen a baseball game. It was more like lacrosse, the game we played. On that Sunday afternoon, they marked home plate where Beanish's house now stands. The outfield was full of stumps out towards Jimmy Drowan's field, where he sowed grain. Anyway, they picked two teams of nine players each, and I went out into the field to throw the ball in, and the Protestant minister was staying at Keeson's. And the Keesons were in the ball game because they were from Kingston and they knew how to play it, and so did the minister. He tried to stop them from making runs, but he made one stop and then they scored run after run. Mick Hart from Oak Hill was there, and Mick Dunnegan came from Killaloo, and he had played with Brudenell, and there was Billy Sinclair and Billy Kerwin. Afterwards, we started practicing in the evenings quite a bit. But Jimmy Drowen, he wanted to plant his grain, so we went down and cleared up another ball field down where Bay Street rounds the corner towards Cumbermere, where Pete Hetmanski lives, and we played there in 1896. That summer some of the railroad men were here, and some of them could play a little baseball, so we played them. And then a team went down to the picnic in Cumbermere, but they never played. I didn't go and then we got playing up on our farm where the planning mill would later be built, and we had the Sullivans, Kitts, and George Wilkes, who stayed at Conway's, and Bill Raycraft play. I stumped a field, red pine stumps. I dug them out and made a ball field, and got a team from Barry's Bay Village to come up and play us farmers on a Sunday near the end of September, 1897.' I was catchin', and George Wilkes was pitchin', and we beat them 7-5 in a seven-innings game. There were some who didn't want us to play on Sunday, but they never tried to stop us. That was in 1897, and they came back the next spring, and we beat them again, the farmers did. Then, on the 21st May, 1898, I threw the first curve ball I'd ever seen. I'd never seen that before. "'And, like a darn fool, I started to pitch. "'And there was a big sawmill down here "'with a hundred men working in it, "'and they had a sawyer from Hull, "'a Frenchman, who knew all about the curve ball, "'and Lem Parson knew all about it. "'And I couldn't get it over that game, "'so they defeated us that Sunday. "'Then, in 1899, we kept on playing up there, "'and Hal Hudson from Cumbermere. "'He was a damn good ball-player.' "'and he was running the hotel, "'and he got up a team "'and said he wanted to play our Barry's Bay team. "'We had the station agent, a little Frenchman, "'and he could throw an out-curve. "'Hudson had never seen an out-curve, "'and he was a right-hand batter. "'So we beat Hudson's team forty-ten or something like that. "'Hudson was a good straight-ball pitcher, "'but he had no catcher. "'But on the 2nd of September... "'Labor Day, we went down to Cumbermere, "'and by then they had this Anglican minister "'who had been catching for the International League. "'Well, now Hudson had himself a catcher, "'and we had Barclay Kerwin, and they beat us. "'It was through neglect. "'They used to drag a pointer, "'a rowboat behind it in case anything happened. Twenty people could get into it. "'But the night that the Mayflower sank... "'There was no rowboat. "'A diver found a bottle of liquor on it. "'That played into as well. "'Hudson neglected to pump the boat out on the way down to Cumbermere, "'and so she filled up full and sank, just like that. "'It always leaked, and they used to pump it out as they went along, "'but they forgot to pump it out. "'They neglected to do that. "'And as far as the storm was concerned, there was no storm that night.' "'Not until four a.m. I'm positive of that. "'I was going up to me brother Mix that night about eight p.m. "'That was about the time the Mayflower sunk, "'or that would be a little after the boat sunk. "'And I stood on that high, dry knoll "'to see which way the wind was blowing, "'and there was just a light northeast wind. "'I was afraid of a snowstorm, "'and that's what we got the next morning.' There was quite a little breeze out on the lake. There was no snow that fell till four o'clock in the morning. I was out all night and the snowstorm started about four o'clock in the morning and quite a gale got up then and during the day there was quite a snowstorm. But when those survivors made their fire, they had no snow. Everything would be bare and there'd be dry stuff there. They had a lighter But they say they lost the lighter at first, and then they found it again. But they had six hours before the snow came. That fellow out in the water, paddling with his hands, shoving that rough box, the coffin, and they were tied together with their neckties across the rough box. There were four of them. They took their neckties and tied them across the coffin, and so that was the way they hung on. "'but old O'Brien, he died before they got to the island. "'I had taken that same boat from Barry's Bay in June that same year, "'and we were waiting, waiting, waiting for Hudson, "'and finally Hudson come down, and he had a man on each side of him. "'He couldn't walk hardly. "'His pants was all open, his shirt was sticking out, "'and the Methodist minister and his wife, they were strangers. "'It was their first trip here.' and they were going down on the boat. So the day after the boat sunk, that minister called me up and said, You were on that boat last June. Do you think that was any way to run a boat? And when Hudson got down to Cumbermere, he buttoned himself up and took up the fares.
0: That was Graham Conway performing the written words of his great-grandfather, Thomas Patrick Murray, as recorded in the early 1970s by Tom's grandson, Sean Conway. Of course, Tom Murray was very much a man of his times. He saw a lot of dramatic changes during his long life and not only in and around Barry's Bay, but wherever his family, baseball, politics, or business happened to take him. And Tom Murray thought a lot about what was happening in that world around him and much like picking up a bat to learn how to play baseball, Tom also picked up a pen and learned to express himself through poetry. Here then are some of Tom's best poems as read by Graham Conway.
1: As I sat on a lofty mountain looking down on the valley below I felt the warmth of the spring sun as it melted the last of the snow. This mountain, covered with trees of which many stories are told is more valuable for its scenery than a mountain of solid gold. I heard the birds in the treetop. SING AS THEY LOVE TO SING, SO I THANK THE GOD WHO MADE US, AND ALSO GAVE US SPRING. TAKE ME INTO THE FOREST GREEN, WHERE HUMANS SELDOM TROD. LEAVE ME THERE ALONE UNSEEN, TILL MY SOUL RETURNS TO GOD. TAKE ME BACK TO SOME LITTLE LAKE, WHERE THE moose AND THE RED DEER ROAM. LEAVE ME THERE FOR MY OWN GOOD SAKE. AND CALL IT HOME, SWEET HOME. NOT FAR IN THE DISTANCE coming. DO NOT WORRY, I WILL NOT BE LATE. A FEW YEARS I WILL BE IN THE gloaming, OR HAVE ARRIVED AT PETER'S GATE. WHO WILL MEET US IN THE CELESTIAL LAND, WHERE DEATH OR TIME IS NO MORE? WHO WILL GREET US AND SHAKE OUR HAND ON THAT ETERNAL SHORE? The greatest painter of them all, we see him not. He paints the trees in spring and fall, with paint not bought. He paints the flowers in the spring and summer too, and the sky so blue. He paints the clouds at sunset and at dawn, and the spots upon the fawn. He does not seem to labor at all, yet he is the greatest painter of them all. Some men possess much wealth of gold, Secured one way or another. Others possess hate untold, Like Cain who killed his brother. Many in kindness are enrapt, Do good at every turn. Others work just to destroy, And make their neighbors mourn. MANY ARISE AT EARLY MORN, MUCH GOOD WORK TO PERFORM, OTHERS AT THE SAME HOUR, TO TEAR AROUND LIKE A STORM. THE GREAT PINE-TREE IN THE VALLEY STOOD, A RELIC OF MANY YEARS. THE STORY IT TOLD WAS SAD INDEED, AND IT BROUGHT TO OUR EYES THE TEARS. IT TOLD HOW IT GREW FROM A LITTLE SEED AWAY UP INTO THE SKY. AND HOW TIRED BIRDS DID REST ON ITS LIMBS, AS FROM PLACE TO PLACE THEY WOULD FLY, HOW IT FELT THE WARMTH OF THE JULY SUN, AS IT SAW THE FOREST GROW, THEN IN THE COLD, WHEN SUMMER'S DONE, AND THE WINTER'S FROST AND SNOW, IT SAW THE INDIAN passin' BY, LONG CENTURIES AGO, WITH THEIR CUNNING STEP AND STEADY HAND, TO GUIDE THE ARROW FROM THE BOW. IT HEARD THE CRACK OF THE WOODSMAN'S AXE OVER ON YONDER HILL. IT HEARD THE HOWL OF THE WOLF AND THE OWL AS THEY ROAMED AROUND TO KILL. IT SAW THE FLAME OF THE FOREST FIRE AS IT SWEPT ACROSS THE plain. IT WELCOMED THE CLOUDS OF THE WESTERN SKY BECAUSE THEY WERE THE SIGN OF RAIN. THE GREAT PINE-TREE GREW STOUT AND TALL. AND THE OLDER, THE WISER IT GREW. THE STORY WE'D WRITE WOULD SURPRISE THEM ALL IF WE KNEW WHAT THE OLD TREE KNEW. IT'S NOT BY MEN WITH AXE AND SAW ALL FORESTS ARE SHORN, BUT TIS THE WICKED, CARELESS MAN WHO MAKES THE FOREST BURN. TIS NOT THE MILL THAT SNORTS AND rips AND SAWS AND TEARS, IT IS THE BLAZE THAT BURNS UP HOT THAT MAKES THE HILLSIDE BARE. GOD IN ALL HIS WISDOM GREAT, WITH TREES DID WELL ADORN, BUT NOW SOME WICKED REPROBATE DOES CAUSE THE FIRE TO BURN. TAKE ME AWAY FROM THE CITY, AWAY FROM THIS DOG-EAT-DOG. TAKE ME BACK TO THE FOREST, TO SIT ON A BIG PINE-LOG. TAKE ME AWAY FROM THE CITY, Where the people go on sprees. Take me back to the forest. To live among the trees. Take me away from the city. Away from the skirts and knees. Take me away from the city. Where birds nest in the trees. Take me away from the city. Where some people act like swine. Leave me home in the forests. TO LIVE AMONG THE PINE. TAKE ME AWAY FROM THE CITY, AWAY FROM THOSE SILLY blondes. LET ME LIVE IN THE FOREST, WHERE THE BEAVER BUILDS HIS PONDS. TAKE ME AWAY FROM THE CITY, FROM THIS POWDER, PAINT, AND SMOKE, AND LET ME LIVE ON A MOUNTAIN, AMONG THE STATELY OAK. TAKE ME AWAY FROM THE CITY, "'where suckers are caught every day. "'Take me to the waters in the backwoods, "'where the big fish get away.' "'Jim Sangster sat in the seat ahead. "'He heard the budget and said we're broke. "'The premier looked surprised at him. "'Oh, what has happened, Sonny Jim?' he said. "'The Scotsman replied, "'You hurt my pride. "'You spent our money and now applied the yoke.' THE BARBER'S BILL IS UP AGAIN, THE RAZOR'S IN THE AIR, ALL ABOUT WHO'D SHAVE YOUR FACE AND WHO WOULD CUT YOUR HAIR. Ned Murphy spoke long and loud of pictures on the wall, and how the old folks looked so well that never shaved at all, and how the wives would cut their hair and chisel off their chin, and to have a barber's bill. "'To Ned it seemed a sin. "'Since the white man trod on this here sod "'and called it the land of the free, "'it was custom, I think, to have a drink "'and oft-times go on a spree. "'But they shut us off in seventeen, "'we thought forevermore. "'Then Ferguson said, "'Without it we're dead, "'and gave us the 4.4. "'We'd played the game a long, long time.' SAW PLAYERS COME AND GO, SAW SOME GROW STOUT AND SOME GROW SLIM, WHILE MANY LEFT THE SHOW. SOME PLAYED ON FOR YEARS AND YEARS. WE THOUGHT THEY'D NEVER STOP, YET HE WHO PLANNED OUR DESTINY HAD MARKED THE DATE TO FLOP. WE HAVE SURE GROWN OLD WITHIN THE FOLD, BUT STUCK TO THE OLD GAME, ALTHOUGH WE'VE NOW A FURROWED BROW, AND MUSCLES ARE QUITE LAME. WE'VE PLAYED TOO MUCH, WE FEEL THE TOUCH, AND THINK WE SHOULD RESIGN, BUT COACH ALONG THE YOUNG AND STRONG WHO FOLLOWED DOWN THE LINE, THAT THEY MAY PLAY THE SAME OLD WAY, AND STEP INTO THE GAP, TO GAIN RENOWN FOR THEIR HOMETOWN, AND KEEP IT ON THE MAP. THE SUMMER'S PASSING AND THE AUTUMN'S NIGH, THE SUN IS CHANGING ITS COURSE ACROSS THE SKY. THE FLOWERS LIE DEAD, HAVING FELT THE AUTUMN CHILL, AND THE LEAF IS COLOURING EVER ON YONDER HILL. THE partridge ARE BIGGER THAN THEY WERE SOME TIME AGO, AND THE RABBIT IS CHANGING ITS COAT TO MATCH THE COMING SNOW. AND THE DOE IS GREY NOW, NO LONGER RED. THE BUCK'S HORNS ARE FULL GROWN UPON ITS HEAD. THE TREES ONCE COVERED WITH LEAF, Will soon be covered with frost and rime, And bells will ring out The Merry Christmas time. Time matters not to him any more, As he lies there still and cold, Soon to be buried in his silent grave, His body will rest and mould. While his soul rejoices in the celestial land, Where death and time are no more, where the greatest enjoyment is to praise the Lord and the great supreme being adore.
0: That was Graham Conway reading poetry written by his great-grandfather, Thomas Patrick Murray. But for those of you who still want to hear again, or for the very first time, the man himself, well, we couldn't let you go without playing a short clip of Tom Murray from those 1970 interviews when he was 90 years old and still talking with his very unique Valley broke.
2: He, he, he was a woman hater, he had in Oh, yeah. <coughs> so, McConnell was here, and he had been drunk for 20 years. <coughs> and he was an ignorant man. And <coughs> it's a strange thing. McConnell was Russian, and first cousin of Father McFadden's, a big Scotch girl. And for a long time, when he was drunk, and- so family failed to open them up. And Ned Fitzgerald was another one. And he was a powerful blacksmith fighter. All oh, these 225-pound man. And they got uh, fixing up old rigs and, and, uh, and making stuff like that. And, and Mick Conley, got, he got married then. And uh, he built that brick house. And he, was, he was made about $20,000. And he only talk a little again, but not much.
0: Thomas Patrick Murray was born near Barry's Bay on the tenth of June, eighteen eighty, and passed away peacefully hundred and one years later on October first, nineteen eighty-one. Of course, in those interviews recorded by Sean Conway in the early nineteen seventies, Tom went on to talk about his life as a husband, father, baseball player, lumberman, reeve, member of provincial parliament, and local poet and perhaps we will be able to bring you some of those equally remarkable stories at some later time. But before we go, one last important note. Some people have often wondered what in tarnation Tom Murray was doing out roaming the streets till all hours on that wild November 12th night in 1912 after the Mayflower left the Berries Bay Wharf and sank later that evening, taking nine poor souls to their watery graves. Well, On that night, the night the Mayflower went down, Tom had been booted from the comfort of his own home and had been forced to wander around town by his loving wife and her ever attentive midwife, who were both busily bringing Tom's firstborn, Joseph Oliver, into this world. The trouble was, little Joe never showed up till the next morning. Tom knew he wasn't about to be let back into his house, nor could he sit still, so our nervous, expectant father wandered Barry's Bay and used the slightest change in the weather to distract himself from his understandable worries. I'm Kristen Marchand, and for the three Conway boys, Graham, Sean, and our producer, Barry Conway, we'd like to thank the ghost of Thomas Patrick Murray for being, well, his loquacious self, and a raconteur extraordinaire. Good day, and God